And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And I'm very thankful to be welcoming on uh, the, the gentleman today. Uh, he is the, uh, the chair of the Northern New Jersey chapter of Saber, and he's also the author of Our Bums, uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers in History, Memory, and Popular Culture, and that is Mr. David Krell. David, welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast. Thank you, Sam. And uh, without further ado, let's get right into it. Give people a little bit of a background on your uh, your personal baseball history, your personal history overall, and what uh, brought you to want to do a, a Dodgers book. Well, I went to Villanova Law School, and during that time, I learned about a case involving a bar called the Brooklyn Dodger Bar and Restaurant. And the L.A. Dodgers, Major League Baseball, they saw this, and they sued because the Dodgers' name is owned by or controlled by Major League Baseball and the Dodgers. So they employed, as you would figure, a powerhouse law firm, Wilkie, Farr, and Gallagher, and the restaurant guys, they didn't have that kind of, uh, you know, they didn't have deep pockets, so they had a, a neighborhood law firm. And it was a David and Goliath situation. David won. The judge basically said the L.A. Dodgers or the Dodgers organization abandoned the mark when they moved to L.A. There was no significant usage of the term Brooklyn Dodgers to warrant them going after this bar and restaurant. And I think anecdotally, that's when there was a big investment in nostalgia merchandise. I believe if you go to the trademark website for the USPTO.gov website, uh, you'll see that the ABA, the American Basketball Association, those marks for those defunct teams are owned by the NBA, or they were the last time I checked. So this case always fascinated me. And then years later, I find myself volunteering for the New York Bar Association's Entertainment Arts and Sports Law Journal. And I was thinking about an article to write. And I said, gee, that case, it, it always interested me. And I, I think that I can get an article out of it. So the article sort of expanded. I figured that I couldn't write about the case without educating people about the Dodgers in general. And there was a moment when I was writing the, the article and I remember when it was, it was in the New York Public Library in, in Manhattan here, 42nd and 5th. And I said, gee, there, no one knows about this case. I keep asking people. No one's heard of it. I bet there are a lot of stories like this. And I'm sure I could get a book out of this. I'm sure that if I took a year, a year and a half, I could find enough stories to warrant a book. And I started looking around and I saw, well, what hasn't been done in Dodgers scholarship? Well, I have 40 books about Jackie Robinson, so I didn't want to spend too much of the book on him, although a significant amount is about, about him. But I hadn't seen anything about movies and television, or, or, if, or if you expand it further, novels, plays, art, music. So pop culture became a cornerstone of the book. And then I realized there are still fans out there. There was a lovely uh, a documentary called The Ghosts of Flatbush, which relied heavily on fan interviews. This was a two-part documentary about the Dodgers uh, that aired on HBO. And I said, I need to find people like that. I need to find 15, 20 people like those people, because that's really the heart of the Dodgers story, these fans who still lament to this day when the Dodgers left for Los Angeles. 
So I went to work, and eventually we got it placed with McFarland, which I was thrilled about. And that's basically how the book got to uh, got to be published. Now, in terms of this, the lawsuit, because it, it does bring up, uh, it, you know, the lawsuit was what in, in the early '90s, late '80s. Yeah, exactly. So Walter O'Malley, uh, uh, well, the family of uh, O'Malley uh, was still owning the Dodgers at the time. Right. And and you know I'm I'm trying to expand my horizons when it comes to the thought process of Walter O'Malley. You know, considering that so many people have just he he's a very one-dimensional fellow to a lot of people. Whether you're talking about him as as this visionary who brought the Dodgers out to L.A. Uh, or as this scumbag who took them out of Brooklyn, um, and. Yeah, yeah. So it, I, I'm trying to think of, of of the direction to lead here with that. But what what did you what what was obviously before you went into this book, you had probably had a, a predisposition about Walter O'Malley. Coming out of the book, where where are you in terms of the O'Malley legacy? Well, it it was the same going in as coming out. I left any predispositions or biases at the door. And I said, okay, I just have to tell the story and let people make their own conclusions. I think that people jump to conclusions without doing the research. There are several letters and memos, uh, dozens of them, in the Brooklyn Historical Society. If the O'Malley family really wanted to divorce itself from Brooklyn, if it wanted to keep Brooklyn in the rearview rear mirror, so to speak, then why are the papers of Walter O'Malley up to 1957 at the Brooklyn Historical Society. They're there so that scholars can research them. They're there so that fans can go through who are curious, and, and we should be curious as baseball historians and certainly as fans. So if you look at those papers, you find that he did want to keep the team in Brooklyn. There was a battle with Robert Moses that's been chronicled in my book and several other books, and he wanted the land condemned. He wanted that, that land that was at the LIRR terminus, the Long Island Railroad. And he thought, well, if I could get the land condemned by Robert Moses, who had the legal power to do it, then I could put a new stadium there. And guess what? All those fans who moved to the suburbs, maybe they'll come back. Remember that Ebbets Field had about 700 parking spaces, and it seated more than 30,000. So in an increasingly car-conscious culture, people are not going to drive back to Brooklyn once they've moved out to Long Island, certainly not at night, but they might take the train in. You're not going to compete for 700 parking spaces, and, you're, and it's too much trouble to be driving around the borough of Brooklyn trying to find a parking space or a parking garage. So the theory went, hey, let, let's do this for the fans They'll come in, they'll go back home, this is a no-brainer, but it wasn't for a public purpose, and that's what Robert Moses had to deal with. He could only condemn the land for a museum, a park, a highway, things like that, and he just did not see a stadium as fulfilling a public purpose. Could O'Malley have purchased land on his own? Could he have gotten... Uh, other investors? Could he have gotten a loan? Could he have gotten a partnership with Brooklyn or the city? Maybe. That's more common now. But back then, it really wasn't so common. I don't even think it was 
uh, it was done in terms of a public-private partnership uh, to, to that, at least in the New York area. I think Milwaukee had a deal with the Braves. And, you know, it's, it, it's funny to look at this and say, well, I would have done this, or it was heartbreaking and he shouldn't have done that. But what would any of us have done? And some of the fans who complain about this, Sam, you know, these people will say, oh, it, it ripped the heart out of Brooklyn. How many games did they go to in 1956 and 1957? How many games did they go to after the Dodgers won the World Series in 1955? What did they do to support the team? We can't forget also that uh, right here in Jersey City, where I am, the Dodgers played a handful of games in 56 and 57. Uh, People speculate that it was sort of a test, that uh, O'Malley was sort of, you know, dipping his toe in the water. If he ever had to move, he wanted options. And Jersey City was a viable option. It had a Roosevelt Stadium, coincidentally, the site of Jackie Robinson's first game in organized baseball. But ultimately, L.A. came up with a, a much better deal. I mean, you know, we could spin ourselves in circles about what was right, what was wrong, what was the ugly. Uh, the whole thing is very nuanced, of course. And, right. you know, you have to question with, from O'Malley's perspective, you know, with, with the Jersey City stuff, I think it was certainly leverage for him to show the, the politicians. Uh, and, and again, even though he had the end-all, be-all say, everybody was worried about lo- doing the wrong thing and looking incorrect, especially as, as, as elections were coming up and, and whatnot. And, um, you know, the, I guess for, for me, considering that he still had three years before the lease was up and uh, considering that, that he had to had still have a proxy back in, in uh, Brooklyn to look after Ebbets Field on a uh, day-to-day basis before they tore it down. I just wonder whether he was a little too hasty in trying to force negotiations. What's your opinion on that? Well, the thing that we always forget to include in this is Robert Moses' offer for him to have a stadium in Queens. And that, would have, that was where Shea Stadium ultimately went. And O'Malley turned that down. So he very easily could have kept the team in the New York, in the New York area, but he allegedly said whether they're three miles away or 3,000 miles away, if they're not in Brooklyn, then they're not the Brooklyn Dodgers. So what does it really matter? And that may have been a, a bluff or bluster, whatever you want to call it, and I, I just think that it is interesting to ponder if he kept them in there, would the fan base have stayed? Because where is Queens? It's right on the border of Long Island. So you do have a lot of Mets fans who live in the island and come to, well, back then it was Shea and, and then now and now City Field. But um, maybe that would have worked. Maybe in a parallel universe that's what happened. But he had a better deal in his mind in LA, it was untapped. It was the, the it was Nirvana. It was the land of opportunity. It's where Hollywood was. There was glamour to it. There was sunshine. You know, there there was a certain glitz factor to it. And LA was a very big minor league town. 
they already had two minor league teams in the Pacific Coast League, the Hollywood Stars and the Angels. So there was a good fan base. There was a very good fan base, and L.A. wanted to get a major league team. They wanted to elevate itself, and it just happened to coincide with the rise of television as a mass medium, and in the 60s, the Dodgers became a fixture in television and sitcoms, the Munsters, the uh, the Adams Family, the not the Adams Family. I'm sorry, the Beverly Hillbillies, the Mr. Uh, Ed, Brady Bunch, Mr. Ed, uh, the Joey Bishop Show, where they sang a customized version of "You Gotta Have Heart" with Don Drysdale and Tommy Davis and Ron Paranowski and Willie Davis and Frank Howard. So there was a, a an acceptance to be sure, and I think that paved the way for the Los Angeles Dodgers to become a national brand. Plus they won. And Sandy Koufax was pitching no hitters and they swept the Yankees in 63. They had a three game playoff against the Giants in 62. They beat the Twins in 65. And then in 66, they got swept by the Orioles. But suffice to say, they were notable in the fall, you know, in the fall, in the postseason. And you know, between San Francisco and Los Angeles, uh, they were, of course, craving baseball. You saw, uh, you know, the Braves go to Milwaukee. It was right. extremely successful. And you think about, let's say, the Senators go to Los Angeles and the Browns go to San Francisco, all, of course, hypothetical. You're not, at that particular time, you're not getting, you know, entities like the Dodgers and the Giants that were, at right. that point especially for the Dodgers at that point, were right. viable national brands that were being yes. thrusted into major markets, markets that, that were, had been basically overdue about 20 years or so for major league quality uh, uh, baseball. Right, and when, and when the L.A. Dodgers won in the second year in L.A., they won the 59 series against the White Sox, that cemented them as an L.A. fixture. And you're absolutely right. Coming to L.A. with some of the players from the 50s, but still having that, uh, that, that, that glory, if you will, where they won in 55, they went against the Yankees in several World Series and didn't win until 55, but Jackie Robinson was known nationally, of course, and so were the others. Pee Wee Reese was known nationally. They were national brands because people listened on radio, they watched on television, and baseball had a much bigger impact on the culture then than it does now. It truly was a national pastime. Right, exactly, and, and that's something that baseball struggles with uh, uh, currently when it's trying to get going, but that's, that's a whole other topic, right? That you right. and I have actually discussed a little bit, a little shameless plug uh, to our, our Mets podcast. Um, right. But so in terms of, so if you could go into your own outside of, of discovering that in law school, what, what, is, what is your relationship with baseball? What, what's your background, both on a baseball level, as well as just a personal geographical level? Well, like any kid who grew up in the mid to late 70s, I collected baseball cards, and that's how you got to know the teams. It's much more difficult now, not only because there are more teams, but because the players change so often. So it's very difficult to keep track of them. And I think that 
in my generation, there was still a sense of it being a national pastime. There was still a sense of history being passed down from generation to generation. Broadcasters who were players in the 40s and 50s would talk about their teammates. They would talk about games. They would talk about you know, what it was like to be in a situation where it's bottom of the ninth or how do you hit a curveball or how do you pitch to a power hitter. There were these kinds of anecdotes, especially with Phil Rizzuto, who palled around with Mickey Mantle and, and, uh, and, and Roger Maris and Whitey Ford. You know, he knew all those guys. So there was a certain glamour factor to being in the, in the New York area as well, whether you listen to Ralph Kiner on the WOR broadcasts. Oh, sorry about that. Um, whether you listen to Ralph Kiner on the WOR broadcasts or Phil Rizzuto on the um, on the WPIX broadcasts. And there was a, just a real sense of wanting to know more. My friends and I wanted to know more about the game. So we would read these biographies in third grade, which are like 50 pages about Babe Ruth or Lou Gehrig or Ty Cobb. And it, it was a really special time. So from, from the New York perspective, uh, since you did bring up what it, the, the, the non-stronghold baseball currently has on, on American life. And right. I, I don't think it's just baseball's fault. I think it's also just the environment that, that America currently is from a, medium, from a media perspective, right. as well as plenty of other things. So it's, it, it's not necessarily baseball's fault. Within New York, the, the New York tri-state area surroundings, would you say – uh, less than still has a major stronghold here because of the Yankees and the Mets. I don't think so. I don't think it's stronger or weaker than any place else. If you go to a Pittsburgh Pirates game at PNC Park, people have a passion for the Pirates. It's the same thing in San Diego with the Padres or San Francisco with the Giants or any of the other teams. People are tribal. We're, we're tribal beings, and rooting for the team in your hometown, you it further reinforces that you belong to a community. Now, 120 years ago, it was much more evident because when the immigrants came and settled from Ellis Island, what better way to assimilate into America than by rooting for a baseball team? That's how Babe Ruth got the nickname Bambino because Italian-Americans called him Bambino, which is Italian for Babe. Right, yeah. And uh, you had a lot of, from an uh, Italian-American perspective, that was a big uh, stronghold on on baseball with a lot of Italian-American players in the 30s and 40s. Oh, sure. I mean, DiMaggio, for sure, is is probably the most famous one. But he also had two brothers. So there was a a real familial uh, sense to the sport when the name DiMaggio was mentioned. Right, yeah. Uh, Dom, of course, was the uh, is the one who played for Boston, right? Right, right. Um, and so, did your was your your uh, parents were they into uh, baseball growing up? Well, you know, my father was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan, and I would hear him tell stories about the team. And I mentioned this in the book, Our Bums. The prologue is about him going to a World Series game in 1953, and the epilogue is about the both of us going to a World Series game 25 years later in 1978, coincidentally a Dodgers-Yankees game. 
So it, it was a nice right. <laughs> way to bookend the, the history of the game because it's very, very personal. Baseball is a very personal sport. In the chapter about fan interviews, there was a lot of heartfelt, uh, what, what would be the word? Uh, people went to a place where they didn't expect to go in that interview. And people got emotional. One person cried. They were very wistful about diners that are no longer there, bars that are no longer there, right. uh, friends moving away, their family moving away, Ebbets Field, Ebbets Field being gone, just gone, demolished, not even, not even standing, just demolished. So there was a real sense of nostalgia, but a sense of sadness. And yet, if you meet Dodgers fans in person, just in passing, the ones who are still with us, the minute you mention, I'm doing a podcast about the Brooklyn Dodgers, I'm doing a book about the Brooklyn Dodgers, I'm speaking at Sabre about the Brooklyn Dodgers, their eyes just open really wide and they get this far off look. And there's a little bit of sadness, but there's also joy because as soon as you mention it, it's not like mentioning the St. Louis Browns or the Philadelphia A's or the Boston Braves. With all due respect to those organizations, there's something about the Dodgers that ignites that emotion. And they all, I, I don't care what walk of life they're in, how much money they have, where, where they are now. It could be a janitor. It could be a CEO. As soon as they talk about it, they all talk about it the same way. You could put 50 people who either grew up in Brooklyn during that time or were fans of the Dodgers during that time, and you could put them all in a room, strangers, within five minutes, you will think that they were the best of friends and have known everyone their whole lives. That's just the way it is with the Dodgers. And you don't get that about the Yankees. You don't get that yeah. about the Giants. No, no, and and with the Giants, I mean, I I have found the pocket that that does have a lot of passion for the uh, the New York Giants and preserving that. A little shout out to uh, Gary Mintz of the New York Giants Preservation right. Society. And the way the way that I and I've mentioned this many times on this podcast was that because of the the situation where the Dodgers were were the most profitable team in baseball. Uh, they, they might not, you know, the Yankees might have been more recognizable and might have been making more money, but from profits, the Dodgers were making more profits. And, right. and, and probably because the Yankees were spending a whole hell of a lot at the time, too. So um, the Giants were not at that time, and they were struggling to get fans to the polo grounds. Um, but it, the, 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 what you're talking about for the same light that that shines whenever you bring up the Dodgers it's the same thing when you bring up Walter O'Malley and the fact that he took the Dodgers out of out of uh, Brooklyn exactly it's what exactly it's what makes them go to hell with you we don't need you it it seemed as if because of the the fact that some fans may have been like you know what he's right we weren't going to to the polo grounds combined with Willie Mays and the fact that they weren't as they didn't take it as personally the way the entire community of Brooklyn did, even not just the, the community of Brooklyn, but the people who could trace their roots back to Brooklyn who had already moved away. Um, that's why it seems like the, the connection and the nostalgia 
for the Dodgers is greater than both the, the Giants and, uh, like you said, the Yankees. And right. I, I just talking about going around, you're talking about the bars and the, 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 the Ebbets Fields torn down. When you go over there, for one thing, I always say that it's too bad that at the time the powers that be didn't have more foresight because had it been – had Ebbets Field made it all the way to the 90s, there's a great chance that there would be an apartment building there with the facade incorporated in the redesign. That's it, just it, how, how it, you know, go ahead. It's quite possible. It's quite possible because we've seen a return to urban ballparks and where the Cyclones play at MCU Park, there, uh, there's the background of Coney Island. So, when Camden right. Yards was built in the 80s, that's when when Major League Baseball and the owners got together and said, you know what, this will bring back the nostalgia. And, and it did to an extent. Obviously, in the yeah. middle of that, you know, I believe Camden Yards got really, uh, got opened up in 1993 just in, in time for uh, the, uh, the big F.U. to the fans with the strike in many ways. And 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 it was Camden Yards, in fact, uh, 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 the um, I forget I forget what the number of games was, but when uh, when Cal Ripken Jr. broke Lou Gehrig's record for right. consecutive games, at Camden Yards, that was seen as a moment that reminded America why they love this game so much and brought some of that nostalgia back, along with these these. Uh, uh, great-looking new ballparks that um, I think when City, by the time City Field had been built, there was a little too much der- derivative, uh, a little too too much uh, 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 to go off of. And I think, that, but that's, again, that's me going on a tangent about what City Field is like. Uh, going right. back to the, the surrounding Ebbets Field, I, I, I have once gone into the middle of the, the building because there's like a playground of uh, uh, concrete little plaza in there and it's just it's weird especially you know they they talk about the ironic signs that say no ball playing up there which of course mm-hmm. is very ironic but the feeling when you're standing there it, it, it's hard even though you do have this aura because of, of of what it's like over there it's hard to 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 put yourself into the the place of what it could have been like and and thinking about across the way from Evans Field used to be bars restaurants all all, all the, this very uh, uh, cooking area of Brooklyn. And just you go over there now and you can't even believe that that used to exist. Well, one thing that was resonant in the chapter about the fans in Our Bums was exactly what you just said, which is after they're describing it or in the middle of them describing their life and, you know, they were 10 years old and their father took them to their first game or they tried to sneak in during the World Series, things like that, they all said, you know, it's hard to explain if, if you weren't there. In one way or another, that was the common sentiment. You know, it was a feeling. If you, if you weren't there, it, it's really tough to grasp. And I sense that I, unless I get a time machine, this was the best that, that I could do in terms of conveying that, that warmth, that sense of community. Everyone told me, and people whom I met after writing the book told me when they found out I wrote about the Brooklyn Dodgers or when I went to a book signing, they said that you could walk 20, 30 blocks in Brooklyn and not miss a pitch 
because every storefront had a radio tuned to the Dodgers game. Every windowsill had a radio tuned to the Dodgers game. So you were part of something that was very, very magical, and it truly was a, a sense of community. And I, I always make the point, other teams are loved and other teams are adored, but they don't have the same connection that the Dodgers had to their fans. And they talk about it was also, for one thing, completely different from a, a, a uh, you know, there were much more working class, the players. Um, you hear about interactions right. where it, it would sometimes, I mean, going all the way back to the 30s, you talk about, like, uh, uh, one story I heard where, I, I forget what the player was, but the kid was just waiting outside Ebbets Field, and then he basically just, like, tagged along with this player for the entire day. With, with him and, and a bunch of other players going to different spots in, in Brooklyn. It might have even been a visiting player at the time. But but with the Dodger players, you know, they lived within the community. I was just talking to Carl, a little name drop, but he, Carl Erskine's been on the podcast numerous times. I was talking to Carl yesterday about uh, doing a, a podcast. One of the things that came up was how, you know, because of the reserve clause, he, they, none of them would ever buy where they lived. You know, it was he was renting from this lady who would go up to his sister to her sisters in Saratoga Springs for the entire season, and then if they were in the World Series, you know, she'd stay there a, a couple extra weeks because they they asked her if you know they they could they could have the house for a couple extra extra weeks, and they were const- they were they were within the community, but from the reserve clause standpoint, they were renting because of how you know what what it was uh, at the time. Well, but they well, were they were up, ingrained in the community. They lived within you. Right. Well, well you mentioned uh, working class, and you bring up a good point, Sam. During my research for the book, I had the opportunity to meet Brian Beagle, who wrote Miracle Ball. And that's about his journey to track down the ball that Bobby Thompson hit off Ralph Branca in 1951. The home run was called, as you know, The Shot Heard Round the World. And that book chronicles his journey to find out what happened. And he made a very astute analogy that just kind of jolted me. He said, if you think about movie stars, who would the Dodgers be? And he said, the Dodgers would be Jimmy Cagney, Humphrey Bogart, Jimmy Stewart. The Yankees would be Cary Grant. Tyrone Power. And that's about as good an analogy as I can make regarding the the working class atmosphere, the the ethic of Brooklyn, the the aura, the personality of Brooklyn and the Dodgers. And this goes beyond the 50s. And this predates Jackie Robinson, who broke the color line in 47. Charles Ebbets was the owner for a very long time, for about 25 years. And he built a new stadium for the fans because the fans deserved it. But when he found out that he didn't have enough money to complete construction, he sold half the team. There is no owner today who would do that. They would either sell it outright if they got a good price, or they would take out loans or convince the state government to float bonds and things of that nature. But this is a guy who loved his team and loved the fans so much that he said, I'll, I'll forsake 50%. I need to raise money. I need to build this. And it became his namesake and his legacy. Uh, yeah, and, and 
that is one of the the most interesting things about this entire story is the way the the dominoes fall to get to Walter O'Malley. And it really does start in many ways, considering that he that that was when it got split up, and the trust eventually, because of of inner turmoil in the Evans family, the trust eventually was the, the main people overseeing it from the Dodgers' perspective, and the McKeevers were still running the 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 show there. Um, it's it's remarkable, like you said, that it was such a selfless way of looking at it to get this ballpark across the finish line. And then that ballpark ended up being probably the main reason the Dodgers were taken out of Brooklyn. Well, you you can make that statement about a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of teams who left, whether it's uh, Boston to Milwaukee or Philadelphia to Kansas City. It could have been the ballpark. It could have been finances. It could have been fans not showing up. A whole host of reasons. So the the, the reasons are not particular to Brooklyn by by any stretch of the imagination. They were just right. visible because it was the Brooklyn Dodgers. They were in the World Series from '47 to '56 many many times. And you had Jackie Robinson. And you make the point they were a national brand. And and here's where something that I mentioned uh, to you off air, uh, I think it was yesterday, but talking about the changing demographics of Brooklyn, um, you know, I go to Ebbets Field and the actual physical structure of it, uh, hearing that it, it was basically not not very, um, uh, uh, it wasn't adaptable. They, they, when they built it, it was very much of its own time, and it was it was very hard to keep up and maintain. Um, but you also talk about the changing demographics of Brooklyn and how they were very focused on those white suburban families uh, coming back to Brooklyn, as opposed to considering that when you're talking about Jackie Robinson and talking about the national aspect of it, he had created Brooklyn Dodgers fans of the black American angle all over the country. And so you, I do wonder sometimes, and, and I think there was a general overall, I, I, I can't directly call Walter O'Malley a racist, uh, but I think that there was an overall issue from an executive perspective, from the powers that be that was running the, the entire American show. Um, they, were, they weren't completely focused on creating other than the idea of, of the West Coast and taking those fans, of the fact that they had new fans that they were also catering to, they didn't really see it that way. They didn't really they, – they, they, they weren't in that mindset. They were just focused on those fans that had left that weren't coming back to the stadium. Well, I don't know if I would go you know, deep in the woods or deep in the weeds, whichever analogy you want to use or metaphor – um, regarding the demographics, this came down to money. The stadium's falling apart, and rather than reinvest, like if you have a car that's 15 years old, it'll take more money to repair it than to buy a new car or lease a new car. So this was the same kind of a format. Do you spend money to put, you know, to, to put this stadium back on its feet? It's been around for 45 years. It's falling apart. People expect things more modern. If you talk to people who went there uh, in the later part of the of the tenure, in the you know 54, 55, 56, 
they'll tell you it was crumbling. It was falling apart. They, he didn't put money into it. And for whatever reason, I'm not privy to it. I didn't find anything in the records. But I think he just wanted a new stadium. And if he couldn't get it in Brooklyn, he was going to push it elsewhere. And the Dodgers were, were at the forefront of of race relations. I mean, they were obviously the first to integrate, but I believe they were among the first to get a Hispanic American player. And it really was about money. I mean, he didn't care, you know, where you came from, as long as you could spend money at the ballpark. He was a, he was a capitalist. And right. Yeah. At the end of, at the end of the day, people can pontificate and they can curse and they can criticize and they can lament all they want. But given the facts, I wonder what they would have done. And if you only have a third of the people coming to the game, and then you have uh, you have Los Angeles saying, hey, we'll fill Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum with 90,000 people, which happened. That's yeah. incredible. That's incredible. That's, that's about twice the size of a, of a regular stadium today. Yeah. And, and, you, and, you also and, and that's before the jump. That's before the jumbotrons. That's before things were, were where you could see a play on the screen. This is the Coliseum, one yeah. of the biggest stadiums in the world. I, and I, um, oh, uh, what, what was it? Um, I just lost my train of thought with that. But but you're you're right though that it it was too good to be true. Right, going to Chavez Ravine. It's pretty remarkable to me that, you know, and and here's another where, like, you wonder about, like, the time frame and the fact that he did still technically have three years to to operate within what am I going to do? Because he gets to the vote, you know, after he's announced that he's going to be leaving, uh, he still needs the land like he's been looking for this entire time. And the vote just nearly passes, and and you know you you it's only speculation and can and and uh, complete hearsay to say that you know who knows whether that was a legitimate vote if it was so close that you had to put it over the edge. But again, that who knows what would have happened had he would have just come back to New York with egg on his face. Right. Well, there's a book that came out this year by Eric Nussbaum called Stealing Home, and that outlines some of the controversies that he encountered in Los Angeles in building Chavez Ravine. So I don't want to make it seem that it was such a smooth ride for Mr. O'Malley to transplant the Dodgers to Los Angeles, get this hole in the ground where he could build a stadium, and then everything is hunky-dory. that's far from what happened. It, it was not a smooth ride at all. It was full of controversy uh, involving race relations, involving finances, involving politics. So Eric's book very nicely outlines the, the costs and benefits that O'Malley had to endure and gain from that battle to get Chavez Ravine on its feet. Yeah, it's like that's a whole other uh, fascinating tangent to go down on at the tail end of, of the story that I'm, you know the time frame that I'm trying to tell. It's, it's remarkable. There's so there's so much material that you know it's it's both a blessing and a curse trying to to weave through it. But in terms of your book, and in terms of everything that you were were uncovering as you you uh, interviewed people and and did your own research. So what are what are some of the things that that are some of the favorite things that you uncovered uh, that that you really think 
a lot of our uh, listeners uh, who could be readers would, would really take away from your book. Well, Sam, there, there are too many to mention in the time we have left, but there was a, a case against Leo DeRocher for assault. I think a fan wanted him prosecuted. Yeah. And that, that case ended very, very quickly because you're, you're not going to prosecute the Brooklyn Dodgers manager in a Brooklyn courthouse. It's just not going to happen. It would have to be so outlandish and egregious. And here's this wise guy fan who's saying all these things about DeRocher. Brooklynites back then, it was part of the, it was part of being in Brooklyn. And that's one of my favorite stories. And then just finding the, the love that I knew people had. I just didn't know how deep it went. I didn't know how tied to the, the, uh, the team emotionally these people were. And, the the part that I wrote, the chapter, I think it's chapter two, about Brooklyn annexing to New York, the name of that chapter is No Grander Name on Earth Than Brooklyn. Brooklyn itself mm -hmm. was a city until 1898, as you know. But going into the Brooklyn Eagle archives, going on the microfilm or on newspapers.com, and you see the letters to the editor, there was a split. Some people in Brooklyn loved the idea they loved the idea of being associated with New York. Maybe we should change the name of the borough to New York East. And then other people said, that's ridiculous. I don't want to be the New York East public library. I don't want to be the New York East anything. This is Brooklyn. This name means something. This name has been around for a very long time. And one person wrote a letter and said, no grander name on earth than Brooklyn. So there was not only a love for the Dodgers, there was a love for the borough itself. And and this is what I, I keep saying, I keep going back to with the Dodgers themselves. Where mm -hmm. I, I really can't think of a bigger representation and a bigger example of the last vestige of that city identity and that city emblem. And I think that was a big reason people had such an identity crisis when the Dodgers left because it, it, it felt like it was the last remaining force of their of their independence. But again, Sam, it wasn't a city until well, it was a city until 1898. And after that, it was a it was a borough. And when you see Brooklyn versus Cincinnati, Brooklyn versus St. Louis, Brooklyn versus Chicago, it's a very interesting pride factor that that emerges because you're a borough now you may be uh, have a couple million people and you might be bigger than some of these cities but they're cities and you're not and to see it equal in the in the eyes of the sports writers and just in the nomenclature that's a pretty cool thing if you're growing up or living in brooklyn even after the annexation in 1898 and, you know, it's like if the New York Giants, what's funny, you know, the New York Giants and New York Jets uh, aren't, pro you know, they're not going to be getting a, a parade down East Rutherford Boulevard. Um, right. But technically they should at the same time. When you look right. at what happens now, everybody's going to be going down the Canyon of Heroes, whether it's the Giants, the Jets, right. the Knicks. The, well, and, that, and that's where, I guess, the Brooklyn Nets come into this play. Will they only march down Flatbush Avenue like the Dodgers used to do if they win? It, it's it's and, and it's it's 
that's what's really cool. Even though I'm I'm staying a Knicks fan and I'm not converting because regardless of how much I hate James Dolan, it's just not going to happen in my head. I, I love the New York Knicks franchise. I I'm so thankful that Brooklyn now has its own its own uh, uh, sports again, right. uh, its own major league sports, professional sports again. But it it's it's curious because everything that we're talking about, you know, the the Dodgers. It didn't matter. I and mean, maybe if they had gone to Queens, maybe, but they weren't going to be marching down Manhattan. They were going to be marching basically at the time. I think it was from Ebbets Field to Flatbush to Borough Hall. I, I have to get the exact parade uh, route again, but it, it's a, it's a fascinating, it, there, it, there really isn't anything else on earth like Brooklyn. I agree. Thinking about the, the way the, uh, uh, the Mets were born out of both the Dodgers and Giants leaving. I, I think that also makes them very unique, and and, and you know, not exactly similar in in that remark in that regards to Brooklyn, but they're the only team that exists out there because two teams left the city behind. Have you found any of that? Even though, like, we're talking about how unique the Dodgers situation and the way the fans respond. Have you, from either your personal experiences or just talking to people, do you find any of that in what the the Mets legacy, uh, the way they've continued it? Well, the Mets legacy is certainly tied to the Dodgers because of the colors, blue and orange, orange for the Giants and blue for the Dodgers, the NY they borrowed, for lack of a better word from the old Giants logo. And if you go into the rotunda, and we've talked about this on the Mets podcast, there are pictures of Jackie Robinson. It's called the Jackie Robinson Rotunda, and it's very much an homage to the National League in the 1950s, and the Dodgers were certainly a big part of that. So you will find Brooklyn hats in the in the stands at a Dodgers game. You might find New York Giants hats, but it's tough to discern whether they're New York Mets hats or New York Giants hats because the logo is the same. <laughs> but you will you will often find a Brooklyn Dodgers hat at City Field. Yeah, and, what, and I guess what's interesting about the Cyclones to that regard is the fact that although you probably see the majority of uh, uh, Met fans and and. Uh, met logos at some point i mean it's basically half and half when you go to a cyclones game um right and and what's all remarkable have you been to a cyclones game yes sure that you pick up on this too you know it's the the tiniest uh, other than golf coast league and rookie league it's the the most unimportant quote unquote uh, league that you could imagine having and yet that 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 crowd that usually fills about eight to 10,000 worth sounds like they're rooting on major league baseball. Right. Right. There's a, there's a definite connection. You have people who were around way back when who might want to pass their love of the game on to grandkids and what better way to do it than to go to a professional baseball game in Brooklyn. The problem with where the Cyclones play is that it's very far out. It's it's very difficult to get to. If you're coming from Manhattan, it's more than an hour subway ride, I think. So it's the geography is a bit of a problem for people who are not immediately in the borough. Yeah, I see what you mean. Um, I, I'm actually always surprised at how quickly you can get out there on the Q train. 
I haven't yeah. uh, done that in a while, but I think what Coney Island has going for it and, and what they've tried to bring back is, of course, the historical nostalgia element, um, but making it a destination once more. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I, I, um, I think that's true. I think that's true. Yeah, and, and where I wanted to go since we're, we've come to, uh, we're almost closing in on the last, to talk about your Sabre uh, work. And first sure. of all, how did you get, how did you get uh, tied up with Sabre? Well, when I started researching the book, I came across Sabre, and I thought, well, that's just for people like Brad Pitt and Moneyball. That's for numbers people, because all I heard regarding Sabre was Sabre metrics. And I did a little more research, and people said, no, 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 that's, that has nothing to do with it. We have history. Uh, we have people speaking or writing about any issue you can imagine because they're all tied to baseball, whether it's fashion, civil rights, geography, politics, Hollywood, branding, marketing, law, you name it, there's a tie to baseball. And I started to write for the Baseball Research Journal and apply to speak at Sabre conferences, and it's been a lot of fun. So what are some of the, the things that you've uh, uh, uncovered specifically on the Sabre side of things, uh, outside of the Dodgers? What, what are some of the things that first popped to your head? Well, I wrote an article about the New York Mets and popular culture, which served as an inspiration in part for the upcoming book that we talked about on the Mets podcast, The New York Mets and Popular Culture. And that's supposed to come out in September, but it can be pre-ordered now on Amazon or the McFarland website. And I learned a lot that I didn't know. I mean, I know that sounds like a cliche, but I knew that there was a Mets scene in the movie The Odd Couple where Bill Mazeroski hits into a triple play at Shea Stadium. <laughs> but there were but there were other other areas of Mets culture that I didn't really explore. I never knew who wrote Meet the Mets. It never occurred to me. It never it never really entered my mind that there that, that it was anyone beyond uh, someone who worked for the organization, but there's a really interesting story behind it, and there were other uh, other instances of the Mets in popular culture that inspired me to go further and do an anthology with other writers for the Mets book that's coming up in September. Well, we look forward to that one for sure, all of us Mets fans. Uh, and what one of the things that I I always it does you don't have to be a Dodgers fan, you don't have to be a Brooklyn fan, you don't have to be a Mets fan to appreciate some of these little anecdotes. You can either just be a a history fan, a baseball fan, whatever it is. Um, But obviously what, what ends up trending is, is the fan of that, of that particular team. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you bring up Felix and, uh, and whatnot. And just, it's interesting the way some of these things that get attributed to uh, either the baseball team or like things that normally we'd, We'd think like, oh, meet the Mets. You know, it, 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 we we don't think about it like any other pop song, but that's all it really is. Right, and there and, and every team has has a theme. The Houston Colt Forty Fives had a theme: shoot them down, Houston Colts, shoot them down. But the Colt Forty Fives name 
went by the way of the dodo bird in 1965. The team became the Astros. So you don't really hear about that song too much right now. But Meet the Mets has been around since Jack Kennedy was president. You know, this has been around since the Kennedy administration. And it's also, what it, it, it is a um, time capsule of, of, of culture at the time and, and what yeah. who you were marketing to. Because when you think about what the song says, meet the Mets, meet the Mets, step right up and greet the Mets, bring your kitties, bring your wife, guaranteed to have the yeah. time of your life. To them, uh, at the time, it's not like you're, you're marketing it specifically to everybody. You're telling the father of the family to bring exactly. everybody down to the ballpark. And that's, you know, it does, it's not exactly how it operates now. I, I know more than a few women fans of the Mets who are not pleased with that lyric at all. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Another thing, too, what what I find something that maybe people don't pick up on it, and I, I picked up on it after watching Rick Burns' New York documentary, and they were talking about uh, the the popular song that became most identified with New York at the turn of the 20th century, and that's the Sidewalks of New York. And I hadn't right. heard it, but the, the opening of the song, of course, is east side, west side, mm-hmm. all around the town. And, and you don't even realize, unless you understand that knowledge and have a, a, a history of recorded music and, and just sheet music in general, that the part of the song, east side, west side, is a direct homage to Sidewalks of New York. Well, Sam, you're, you're spot on because these things transcend decades. They transcend time. There's a song that came out just about the time that the Mets were born in the early 60s called Walk Right In. Walk Right In was really a song from the 20s, but it, it, was, a, um, it was a song that's been recorded and rebooted time and time again. Same thing with The Lion Sleeps Tonight. These things transcend. So I think the best example I can, I can give, I don't even know the name of the song, but a couple of years ago there was a very popular song which had the Munsters theme in the middle. They sampled the Munsters theme from the 1960s hmm. television show. Now, kids listening to that today might think, oh, that's an, that's an awesome bridge. That's an, that's an awesome piece of guitar work. 50 years ago is where they're taking that from. So timeless is timeless. Things will transcend. They might change the lyrics of Mr. Met because of popular opinion, but the song, the, the, um, the arrangement will remain the same. It's, it's fascinating. Um, just everything that we're talking about, you know, things are, are statues are being toppled, lyrics are being changed, television episodes are being removed from streaming. You never know whether they, they might go ahead and change the lyrics. But I, actually, we're going to go to the the phone lines here, and we have a two on two area code to welcome on. Uh, hello, you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Hi, who are we speaking with? Two o two area code. Yeah, this is uh, Richard Zamoff calling. Hey, Richard. Hi, Richard. Hi. How, how, how are you doing today, Richard? 
What's on I'm, your mind? I'm doing good. D- David and I were on a show with John Barbarian not that long ago, uh, which Indeed. I think he may he may remember. Uh, I was interested in going back to the commentary about the the demographics of. Uh, uh, Brooklyn when O'Malley took the Dodgers away because I remember talking to Roger Kahn a couple of years ago and he was pretty adamant uh, about saying that he was sure that uh, O'Malley had some racial animus and that uh, his, his attitude about Puerto Ricans and blacks were uh, was certainly not benign. So while the show was going on, I opened up uh, Arnold Rampersad's biography of Robinson, and I looked in the index any references to Robinson and O'Malley, and I found this interesting citation uh, that refers to an occasion when uh, the Urban League of L.A. had given O'Malley a plaque to mark his, quote, enlightened leadership in opening the door to the employment of Negro athletes in Major League Baseball, close quote. And Rampersad writes, the award touched Jack in a tender spot. He could not bear to see Branch Rickey's glory given away so brazenly, especially since O'Malley, in a recent Time magazine cover story, had hinted that one reason for the Dodgers' move from Brooklyn was the rapid growth of its black and Puerto Rican population, close quote. Robinson said publicly, O'Malley had nothing to do with it. It was all Mr. Ricky's idea. I don't think O'Malley knew anything about it in the first place. And uh, on the, as a postscript on the defensive, the Urban League announced that the award was being, to, being given to the Dodgers as an organization and not to O'Malley personally. Right. So this again confirms what I've heard from a number of sources that uh, maybe the term lets him off the hook is too strong, but certainly uh, the evidence is mixed about whether O'Malley was uh, uh, fully cognizant of the demographic changes in Brooklyn. Certainly not, it wasn't the only reason, but I'm sure that it factored into his, uh, into his decision. But Richard, if you go to the Ghosts of Flatbush documentary that HBO did, Buzzy Bavese, who was O'Malley's right-hand man for so many years, said... Race mattered nothing to him. If you could come and pay your way, pay for a ticket, pay for the peanuts and the beer, that's fine. He didn't care. But if you didn't pay, if you weren't, if you were causing trouble, if for whatever reason um, you you were not engaging in business around Ebbets Field, you know he that that's really what what ticked him off. And I don't think a black or white made a difference. He was a capitalist. He wanted to make money. And well, I think I think Bavese, I think Bavese's relationship with O'Malley's at one end of the continuum, and Robinson's relationship with O'Malley's at the other end of the continuum. Well, Robinson never gave Ro- Robinson never forgave O'Malley for pushing out Branch Rickey. There was a front sure. office battle, and Branch Rickey owned part of the team, but O'Malley sure. was able to basically push him out. And I don't even think that I'm using. Uh, you know, incorrect language. He he pushed him out, and then and then uh, and then Mr. Ricky went to Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And it's unfortunate. But I, I think I, it, the way yeah. the way. Um, sorry to interrupt, guys, but I, I literally was reading this in the Walter O'Malley biography by Michael D'Antonio, and right. um, and of course he's going he's framing it from the Walter O'Malley side of things. He got he, he I, I think 
Mr. Peter O'Malley opened the the journals of uh, of O'Malley and the date books yeah. and, uh, gave him a lot of material to go off of. But one of the things he was saying with with this specific uh, uh, part about Branch Rickey was that Branch was was considering his legacy leading up to the end of the 1950 season, and it it didn't strictly say that Walter O'Malley pushed him out, but it said that that uh, uh, the way it all went down. Um, it, 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 you know, Branch just obviously did not feel as welcome there as he had at the beginning of, of the time. But, 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 but it, it basically placed it as Branch was considering selling way before it became like this real tug of war from a, a financial standpoint. Right, and the I, battle I that, just I gave him right. impetus yeah. to do it. The battle just gave yeah. him impetus to do it, and there were some shell game uh, bluff negotiations going on that. Uh, got him an extra uh, amount of money, a very substantial amount of money, because he was, uh, I think, I don't want to say conspiring, but he was connecting with the Pittsburgh Pirates owner, Galbraith, and they engineered some kind of a bid that they knew O'Malley would never go for, and then he had to pay it, and the rest is history. Right, exactly. Well, uh, Richard, okay. um, we're we're getting to the tail end of, of, of the show, but I, for one thing, I just wanted to thank you so much for uh, giving us a call in here, and, and by all means, what, what else is on your mind? Well, I just enjoyed the show. It was, it was very, very good, very informative, and uh, I always like hearing about the book. You know, I I couldn't help but think even if I was in that room that uh, David was talking about with all those book of, uh, the book of Dodger fans, uh, it wouldn't have taken me five minutes to feel at home. It probably taken them two or three. But yeah. uh, it was a great comment. Well, thank you, thank Richard. You. And, and we're gonna have to, we'll, we'll have to uh, get in contact with you off the air uh, and, and Very talk good. some uh, some. Okay, take care, guys. Good talking Thanks, to you. Richard. Well, David, we are at the tail end of the show. And again, we thank Mr. Uh, uh, what was his last name, uh, David? Samoff. Zamoff. Zamoff. Thank Mr. Richard Zamoff for calling in. And, and uh, it, you know, there, there's really never there, there's never a bookend to everything that we can talk about, David. And, and first of all, before I ask you for your last word, uh, I just wanted to thank you profusely for coming on to this show because you, 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 you are, are so good at going across the board, across the spectrum and, and bringing so many different ideas and debates and, and knowledge to, uh, to the table with this, uh, this, this project. And so I really greatly appreciate you coming on today. Oh, it's my pleasure. So we always like to say, uh, uh, what is your last word? What is your final word? And, uh, with, with everything we've talked about, um, and, and the research still going on with, I, you know, if you're doing a, a if you're doing a Mets book, you're still within the New York National League legacy. So, what is what's you on bet. your mind? What's your last word regarding the Dodgers? Well, I think that uh, I certainly want people to embrace history. I hope that they read my book. I hope that they read other books. My book is available on Amazon. It's called Our Bums, and the New York Mets in Popular Culture is available on pre-order. But read something. Keep the history going. Don't just read my book. Read other books. Uh, this is a, a crucial time in the sport. This is an absolutely critical time as to whether this sport will survive. And with everything going on now, we don't know that there will be a baseball season. 
this baseball season could be canceled if there's an outbreak in a clubhouse, if five guys get it on one team, uh, then the rest of the team might fold and say, I'm, I, my health is more important. We've already seen that in the past few days. So keep the sport going as any way you can, and reading is a great diversion uh, to doing that and to moving the sport forward. Here, here. Thank you so much for joining us. And everybody, I, I, uh, I, please go out and not only buy his book, but, but uh, heed his words and, and just keep the, uh, the knowledge flowing and, and uh, pass the book along, whether it's an e-book or a, a hard copy. By all means, just keep, keep not only the sport alive, but what it means for this country and what it is meant to this country and how every different theme that America has dealt with from, from the 1840s onward can all be viewed and learned and discussed through the prism of baseball. So please, by all means, heed Mr. Krell's words. And thank you all for listening to us today to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. And we appreciate your help and, and uh, uh, just constant listening uh, uh, to keep this, this, uh, this dream alive. So thank you all. And we will catch you next week. Take care.